The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. Right now, in fast rates are heading higher and probably faster, too. Chair Powell telling the Senate the Fed may have to hike more than they planned and possibly more quickly, too. The historic reaction in the bond market and the sell-off it triggered in stocks. Plus, a shot in the arm for obesity drugs. WW, formerly known as Weight Watchers, inking a deal to allow them to prescribe weight loss drugs like Ozempic and Monjaro. Some say this is a watershed moment. Others fear we are jumping on the fat loss wet bandwagon too fast we'll dig in and later would you rather with two fang stocks one bitcoin name defying the crypto slump and the airlines flying high in today's down market i'm melissa lee this is fast money we're live at the nasdaq market so you've got a full house here uh tonight steve grasso karen feiderman bono and ison and guy adami all here on set we start off with a major reckoning for the market. Stocks stumbling after Jerome Powell sent a testimony this morning. The Fed chair warning that rates may go higher than previously expected as the fight against inflation is not over. The Dow dropping nearly 600 points, snapping a four-day win streak and falling back into negative territory for the year. The S&P and Nasdaq following suit. But the real move came in the rates market. The yield on the two-year Treasury topping 5%. For the first time since July 2007, it's spread with the 10-year, now more than 100 basis points. That is the widest it has been since 1981. So was today's testimony the straw that broke the bear market rallies back? Guy. Yeah, I don't know about that, because every time I've thought the market's going to take the next leg lower, for whatever reason, it finds its footing again, and we're talking about an S&P that's flirting with 4,050, 4,100. So I'm not ready to say that. But what I am ready to say is, you know, Jerome Powell continues to talk the talk. The market chose to listen to him today for whatever reason. And I'll say this, you know, two tens going to 100, 104 right now. It didn't stop. It said, you know, we don't need to stop at one. Let's go to 1.04% inversion. I mean, that's problematic. Again, I say it, I'm not an economist. I'm not smart enough nor humorless enough. Steve will handle that on the back end. But, you know, that is a problem for the economy. You mentioned 42 years. I think the last time it was like 15%, 14%, and things didn't fare particularly well. So we'll see. I think the market is realizing that higher rates should not be bullish for stocks. We're also going to hear from him tomorrow, though. So I think we have to really sort of temper that. I, I, I said last night on the show, I wasn't sure. I thought the Senate was going to push him dovish. I'm not sure that happened. I don't think he sounded dovish. But what, what is the House going to push him? Dovish or, 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 or hawkish? Probably hawkish, right? Well, They're going to demand fiscal responsibility. It's, it's, but they're going to push back, as Senator Warren did, on, on raising unemployment, right? They, I mean, you're, they, you're gambling with people's lives, she said, with this hope that, that you know, rising unemployment will tamper down inflation. You know, this is the first time ever I feel as if I agree with Elizabeth Warren on anything. I feel, I feel and, and, his comeback, and his comeback was, should we do nothing? Uh-huh. And there was a lot of people who's, who were probably there saying, I don't know. Maybe maybe we should do nothing. I, how do you prove or disprove the counterfactual on whatever he's talking about? 
So let's wait till tomorrow. Let's see yeah. what the market digests tomorrow. We, we don't know. And that's the thing. And, you know, Ken Griffin was on Bloomberg and he said the Fed is in uncharted territory. I mean, that is a fact of the matter. We don't know what the impacts are. We don't know how it will impact. We don't know if it will work in the end. You know, we don't know, and this fiscal stimulus that we've had is kind of like the X factor here. And I think that is what brings us into this unknown situation. So, you know, you can say perhaps they should do nothing, but isn't that exactly what we slammed them for? Being late, what was the saying? Late to the party and staying too long. So now they well, are. Well, they got to start active. doing nothing at a certain point. Uh, okay. They can't, they, well, you know, you can't argue that they're going to do nothing now. They should have done nothing before. They've done a lot. No, we yeah. just haven't seen the effects. No, no, right. no, no, exactly. They, they, sh- they shouldn't have done nothing before. They should have gotten involved much earlier. Right. They should have shown up earlier and perhaps headed off and understood what this fiscal stimulus was going to do to help avoid the situation that we're in now. That, that, that's what I would posit. With, with that said, you know what I. I what I thought was interesting is what he also said when, was, when he was questioned was, it's very important that we get inflation expectations under control because that essentially is the linchpin uh, or, or what underscores how people are going to make their spending and saving decisions. And I think that's very important. I think the economy, you know, while they perhaps were fighting back, if you look at Fed funds rate, they didn't really sound like they bought into the higher for longer situation. It seems like markets today started to buy into the narrative of we may be going higher fast. And I think that's what shocked markets. I think we had all thought, at least if we're going to end up higher, we've tapered the pace of rates. And that seemed to be turned on its head today. I feel like he has been hawkish, hawkish, hawkish. All of them. All along, right? right? Like, and they like send out this, the hawks. With the markets, right? like, yes. listen to us, right. listen to us. And so it's surprising to me that today, all of a sudden, oh, my God, look at how hawkish right. he is. So I agree with you, Bron. They probably should have started in 2018 when they did that quick U-turn on raising rates. That, to me, seemed a mistake. It's always painful to raise rates. It's never easy. But I think he's doing the right thing. I always am amazed at how... There seems to be somewhat of a lack of understanding of some of, of how some of the economy works when they keep pounding on him. And yet fiscal policy, right, is not helping. Right. It's not helping him at all. So, you know, he's in a tough spot. I sort of think he's doing the right thing. We've heard a lot about, well, you know, the the effects of these rates are going to take time. We're really, you know, he's really threatening the, the economy. I guess, you know, that's why you'll see the, the further out bond curve was didn't really move anywhere remotely close to what the near right. part of the curve did. I, I think he's doing the right thing. It's painful, but the alternative is to for runaway inflation. And that's what he said. He said, right. would you rather? Would you rather yes. have it? He wouldn't he's playing would you rather himself. But he said that's better for Would you rather people have their jobs but have right. five or six percent? But does he have control? But does he have control no exactly? But does he have control? over where you see the runaway inflation. We've talked about this from the start, mm-hmm. that the tools that he has can't control where the inflation really is. It was a supply chain disruption out of a 100-year-old pandemic that we had it, and now we're expecting Jerome Powell to handle it with his fiscal policies or monetary policies. Right. Uh, for more on the market reaction to Powell, let's bring in senior economics reporter Steve Leisman. Steve, we've been having a a debate here on the desk. Um, What has moved, though, is expectations for March at the very least. Yeah, that's a bit of an understatement. Uh, Surge, uh, soar. Take a look at the probability now for a 50, where it was before Powell started speaking and where it is right now. You were at a 23% probability of a 50, and I think the last number I looked at was something like 62%. So, That 50 is now the odds-on favorite for the market right there. Um, And then if you look across the broad spectrum, all 
rates are higher in every contract for the Fed funds, as you might expect. In fact, they're all records now. The peak rate in October now, 563, uh, that's dialed in. And then you have the year-end rate of 540 and change there. That's uh, dialed in as well. Still a little bit of cuts left in, but not much. There's some, there's some back-end uh, uh, belief that, that the Fed might back off at the end of it. But, but I think the message was clear. I like what Karen was saying. And I think if I could be a little bit subtle here, what I would, what I would say is I think Powell's always been hawkish. He allowed himself in previous conversations to be interpreted as dovish. And it was that mm -hmm. use of the word disinflation or disinflationary at the last press conference that the people who wanted to hear a dovish uh, uh, message uh, glommed onto. It was said 15 times, and most of those times were in a dovish context. This time he used it once and only in a hawkish context. So he did not allow himself to be misinterpreted this time. He was very clear and succinct with his language. And so you should walk away from this with the idea that if inflation is going to remain high, the Fed is going to remain higher. Steve, pleasure to have you as always, particularly when it comes to, to, to Fed and monetary policy. Do you think there's risk that he has to back off from any of the statements that he made today, tomorrow? Do you think, I mean, so fine, the market tends to react the way it's going to react. Do you expect to see similar follow through with the testimony tomorrow? Well, let me say that that's the exact right question to ask, because it is not it has happened before that uh, the day two is the redirect day. I look at these rates. I look at the market reaction and I don't think he wants to redirect. I think he's happy with this. I actually think to some extent the market the market reaction was the one that he wanted. And I think what he did was push the market in the direction that it was going. Uh, if you look at what's happened to the, for example, the January 24 Fed funds rate, we've had a one percentage point increase in that outlook. That is a massive out, uh, change in the outlook for a month. And so he just kind of said, you know what, keep going, guys, keep going. Uh, it's going to depend on the data. I may not do 50 if the data is not strong, but I may do it and you ought to price it in. And so I think he's pretty happy with the result right here. So I would not think he has a reason to back off or backtrack where he's been. Do you think he'll be happier uh, if, if a pause or pivot is moved out even further in time? The notion of higher yeah, has Melissa, gone I don't through finally, but longer I'm not sure is know, really in there. I'm shooting myself because I didn't bring my favorite chart for you, Melissa, which shows the, 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 um, uh, the, 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 the cuts that are built in for next year. Mm -hmm. But I can read them to you, which is through 2024, if you take the peak rate of 563, there's 140 basis points of cut, cuts built in. I don't think, Melissa, that that's a problem for him right now. I think if he could, he would shift that high rate a little bit further into January, February. But I don't think he's too concerned that the market has some optionality on things working out for the better here. And that's what I think you call it. I think if we had a, a, the year-end funds rate that, as you remember, was calling for 80 basis points of cuts, I would think he would think that's a problem. I don't think he's too exercised at this point. You know, a month goes by, two months goes by. That may be something on his radar. I don't think it's something that bothers him right now. All right. Steve, thank you. As always, Steve Leisman. Let's bring in Michael Kantopoulos, Director of Fixed Income at Richard Bernstein Advisors, to the conversation. Michael, always good to see you. 
Um, what was your takeaway here, and were you surprised by the market's reaction? Um, you know, Steve is absolutely right uh, with regards to you know uh, everything he said about Chair Powell being happy about the market's reaction today. I mean, listen, this is a, a Fed that you know needed to get more hawkish. Um, so, so maybe I would push back a little bit on Karen, only from the perspective, Karen, that you know I, I just don't think he did enough to articulate the view. Uh, that the Fed wants basically a slowdown in the economy and is okay with that. And, and what Chair Powell has done over the last you know, several months is basically reiterate this idea of a soft landing, how it's possible, how the unemployment rate doesn't have to go up that much. And I know he's trying to be optimistic, but it's, it's served against the purpose of actually being hawkish, which really the committee is, right? And so I think today's reaction is exactly what it should have been. Um, you know, the two tens curve is really, really important. I think that, you know, as that has gotten more inverted, um, that's going to slow the economy. It's going to continue to slow bank lending. And at the end of the day, that's the goal of the Fed in terms of their hikes. And so I think he's um, he's very happy with the market reaction. I think it's exactly what we all should have expected. And I don't think it necessarily stops here either. So I'm sort of confused about the part where we don't agree, because I sort of agree with everything that you said. But I thought there was one someone who questioned him and said, you know, that, you know, housing slowed and that you want the economy to slow and you want uh, jobs to, you know, to raise unemployment. And he said, yes, 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 I recognize all of those things will happen. Maybe he should have said it a little more forcefully, but I thought he was admitting we have to do this, that it's 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 collateral uh, damage that for a higher purpose. T today he did, Karen. Uh, there's no doubt about it. I, I think the last um, press conference, he got a little bit too cute. Uh, and probably the last couple times he's spoken, quite frankly, I wrote, I wrote a piece about this back in, I believe it was February, how his communication strategy at the last FOMC may have been his biggest blunder uh, since basically COVID. You know, I thought even though the committee was very clear that they were going to be higher for longer, he kind of left the door open to really a, a, a chance for a soft landing and unemployment not going up that much and there just not being that much pain. I think, quite frankly, you know, Chair Powell representing the committee had, although not declared victory, had started to see signs that maybe all of their policy had started to work. And now he's had to backtrack on that a little bit. And I think that's what today was. And so I think he's finally acknowledging for the first time in, in a while, maybe not since the summer, that there's going to be real pain. I think that's exactly what he needs to communicate. Listen, you can't bring down demand and the service side of the economy without bringing up unemployment, right? And, and there's just no way to do that. It, it, it's a fairy tale to think otherwise. And so I think communicating that today was the right thing to do. And, um, you know, I, I think there's probably more of that to come over over the coming weeks, particularly if we get a strong CPI print, a strong jobs number and or a strong retail print, all of which are going to happen before the next meeting. And just quickly, Michael, I'm wondering if you think that he is basically saying that a hard landing is possible, an acknowledgement that that is before it was always a soft landing is still possible. But if he said uh, that is still that is a possibility here that could really get the message across. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. I, I think he needs to say that a hard landing is possible and that we won't cut rates until the unemployment rate goes up, you know, 100, 200 basis points. That's going to get the message across once and for all. Maybe he'll say that 
you know, in coming meetings. Um, you know, if the market does its work for him, he won't need to. But listen, the, the, t the loosening of financial conditions this year has really been something. The increase in um, uh, inflation expectation has, mm -hmm. has been pretty dramatic. And, and there's an easy way to, to, to satisfy uh, the, what the Fed wants to achieve. And, and that's to basically say unemployment needs to go up. Michael, good to see you. Thank you. Michael Kantopoulos, Richard Bernstein Advisors. Um, what do we see today? Banks getting crushed. Yep. We saw real estate getting crushed. All the things that depend on lower rates to work or not in a steep inversion. I don't think banks depend on lower rates to work. No, I, the inversion. I know it, it always seems to trade with that twos, yeah. ten spread, even though I don't know that it has that one to one effect or more than that that the market seemed to assign today. That seemed overdone. Well, look, I mean, it comes down to this. I, you know, I think in 2018, in my opinion, Jerome Powell in October was on the right course. He said, we're raising rates, autopilot the whole thing, reducing our balance sheet. And I think then, and I said at the time, they were on the right course of action. And he got browbeat by the, that administration, and the market went down 19.9%. And my sense is he's not looking to make the same mistake twice, nor is he looking to make the same mistakes that were made in 1972-73. Coming up, we're all over the after hours action in CrowdStrike. Shares surging after its results. We're bringing the details from the quarter next. Plus, the tail of the tape, Alphabet versus Meta in a big tech tussle. So who are you putting your money on? Or would you rather of epic proportions when Fast Money returns? What's on the horizon for financial markets? At PGIM, it's a question that over 1,400 investment professionals relentlessly research in pursuit of your long-term goals. Specialized across asset classes, but united in collaboration, our teams provide global and local expertise. Our investments shape tomorrow, today. Pursue your tomorrow with PGIM, a leading global asset manager. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome back to Fast Money. We've got an earnings alert on CrowdStrike, the software stock jumping after reporting beats on the top and the bottom lines and giving strong guidance for the year. Steve Kovacs got the details. Steve. Hey, Melissa. Yeah, there's strong results coming from strong from CrowdStrike and a lot to like in this report. So let's start with those beats on the top and bottom lines. EPS coming at 47 cents versus the 43 cents adjusted the street was looking for. Revenue, $637 million versus the $624 million the street was looking for as well. Guidance, also very strong for the current quarter and the full year, largely beating expectations. The company's expecting up to $3 billion in sales this year alone. Some other highlights, though. Annual recurring revenue, this is a big metric here, strong as well, up 48% year-over-year to $2.56 billion, plus a record for net new recurring revenue in, in the quarter, $221 million. And free cash flow also hitting new records, $676 million, up from $441 million a year ago. Now, those are the highlights, Melissa. The call is just starting, and I'll have more updates as they come. All right, Steve. Thanks, Steve Kovac. Um, a pop in light of 
the disappointments that we had out of the software sector, in particular cyber, cyber stocks. Like all right. Scale. So, yes, Steve just pointed out all the good yeah. things. I'll point out some things that aren't so good. So operating margins, 15 percent, same quarter last year, 18.7 percent. Stock is now currently trading 65 times next year's numbers. Maybe you have 25% or so EPS growth. You make the decision yourself, trading at 20 times revenue. So I get it. I understand why the stock is bouncing. We have bounced from 92 to current levels. That's from October or so. So it's seen a pretty significant bounce. And if you look at the levels we're at now, and Steve can probably chart this, we're still in a pretty significant downtrend. So I don't want to be a hater here because it was a good quarter. But I think you're looking to take profits here, not to add to longs. So, Chartist, what do you say? Yeah, so, so it's been a declining trend line since November of 2021, is, is what Guy is uh, pointing out. It's still in that declining trend line. It has to pop further from here. And this has been a segment of stocks that can't find their way out of a hole. You, this is a great environment for them. You would think that you, if you scripted an environment where cyber should be at all-time highs, I don't know if you could script one better than the environment that we're in right now. The stocks never seem to work, although all the fundamentals seem extremely impressive and that free cash flow off the charts. Uh, there's a lot more fast money to come. Here's what's coming up next. Ring the bell. It's time for a big tech battle. Alphabet versus Meta, vying for your money. So who's more expensive? The would you rather you've all been waiting for. Plus, the biggest loser could be the biggest winner. The battle for the billions at stake in fighting obesity. So who's best positioned to surge on these slimming drugs? You're watching Fast Money, live from the NASDAQ market site in Times Square. We're back right after this. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve with the help of T-Mobile for Business. Our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. Welcome back to Fast Money. The recent surge in shares of Meta has accomplished something that hasn't happened in a while. For the first time since late 2019, the Facebook parent is now more expensive on a forward P.E. basis than Alphabet. So that got us thinking, would you rather mm. Meta or Alphabet? I'll go to Karen. Okay. I mean, you, you've been tormented about this question for uh, yes, a while. I have. And it's <laughs> actually more pronounced than it looks because Alphabet has more cash per share on the balance sheet as percentage than Meta. So, ugh, I, I was going into the year long. Uh, Alphabet was my biggest position. I paired a little during that GPT thing and then bought some back, uh, and Meta has appreciated much more. All that having been said, though, listening to the words of our very sage producer, I want to have my cake and eat it, too. I don't know if that's outside of the rules. Of would you both? rather? I have them Are both. You know both. I have them both. Pull the Grasso. Wow. Yeah. yeah. Grasso. In front of Grasso. Oh. It's all right. It's all right. Uh, uh, Bonwin, can you answer? 
can you play this game properly? Yeah, last time I didn't play this game properly, I got thrown in the penalty box. You remember that a couple right. years ago? And I, I don't want to end up back there. It sounds like so, it might be a Melissa thing. Uh, whoa, 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 whoa. hold on, man. Not while I'm yeah. playing. You have the commentary on your own time. So uh, I'm going to go with Google here. And the real reason is Karen mentioned the cash. I'm going to mention the growth. You're paying about a half a turn cheaper for the growth on Google here. And that's why I prefer that company. Ah. So I'm gonna pick. Uh, I'm gonna pick Google. Oh, you picked actually. Yeah. Nice. Okay. Good work. I, I've actually. I, yeah. Thank you. <laughs> I, I was long Meta. I'm agnostic when it comes to profits. So I bought Meta on that dip. It rallied. I sold it. What do you mean you're your agnostic on profits? You don't care how much they make. I don't. I don't really. It, wherever the momentum goes, that will it's trump. That will trump all, fundamentals okay. for me. Not all the time, but yeah. in in this case, the stock was grossly oversold. I bought it, I added to it, I wound up riding that, riding it higher on momentum. But Alphabet had a huge debacle when it came to AI. They have to climb out of their own hole that they created for themselves. But on a performance level, I think Alphabet is the laggard. I'd rather buy them instead of Meta, which nobody understands what Metaverse is. It's so weird, this whole <laughs> AI thing, because we've all been saying that, that the impact is, is far off, and yet it's got a hole right now that it's got to climb out of. (laughs) And yet they have AI. Right, Right. Right. they don't have it. They have AI. The problem they created was that all hands on deck press con. I mean, that was, they messed that one up. But I mean, Karen talks about this all the time. They've been working on this for over a decade. So it's not like they're behind the curve necessarily. But playing the game correctly, it's for me, it's Google as well. I mean, Facebook's had its move, justifiably so. I think we're a little ahead of ourselves right now in terms of where we are. I think the TikTok news has gotten you the last 15 or so dollars in the stock from 173 to current levels. But Google at these valuations, I think you're anticipating a Facebook type of move for Google with any incremental news you could see. So in this game, it's Google. All right. Coming up, shares of WW International rocketing higher after getting in on the weight loss drug surge. The billions of dollars at stake in the slimming scuffle, plus deal or no deal, used car prices driving higher again. The biggest month-to-month spike in, in 15 years. We'll find out what is behind this automotive U-turn. Fast Money's back in two. Get your trades to go with the Fast Money Podcast. Catch us anytime, anywhere. Follow today on your favorite podcasting app. We're back right after this. Welcome back to Fast Money. Another check in the markets today. Stocks closing near the lows of the day as Fed Chair Powell spooked investors by saying rates are heading even higher than expectations and the pace may be quicker than anticipated. The Dow dropping almost 575 points. The S&P down one and a half percent. The Nasdaq down one and a quarter percent. And take a look at the grayscale Bitcoin trust, GBTC. It shot up today while Bitcoin slumped. Um, Karen, you flagged this for us. Um, it appears to be as, as a result of an appeals hearing related to Grayscale's effort to turn GBTC into an ETF, which would unlock that that discount. Yes, that yeah. giant discount, which is it's off the widest port, but it's three, six and a half percent now mm-hmm. discount, which is absolutely enormous. And it seemed like from what I read that the arguments went pretty well. So that's good. It makes sense to me intuitively that there's so much money caught up in this that the SEC trying to I, I don't know how this helps investors, investors yeah. um, even though there may be some big institutional investors caught in it. There are many. Um, and it's been the downfall of many to be in this arbitrage. But I would think that should be the outcome, that they would allow that you, you could redeem and get your Bitcoin out. So, I mean, that's a lot of upside. But you're going to have to wait probably until the fall for a decision. 
Meantime, the market for a new class of weight loss drugs, Ozempic, Wigovi, Monjaro, is about $2.5 billion business right now. But this red-hot area of pharma could grow to at least $50 billion by 2030. That's according to Morgan Stanley. WW, the company formerly known as Weight Watchers, has decided it wants to get in on this piece of the weight loss market. They acquired a telehealth company, Sequence, so it can now prescribe drugs, these weight loss drugs, to its customers. The stock soaring almost 80% today. Its market cap still shy of $500 million. The CEO just joined Closing Bell overtime last hour. We are not in the business of employing um, doctors to prescribe these medications. We make it a, a an easy pathway for them to then access the provider who either will decide that it is medically appropriate or not. And either way, the good news is they have options with Weight Watchers. Here to dive deeper, senior health and science reporter Meg Terrell. Very interesting deal, Meg, for a company that may be ultimately supplanted by these weight loss drugs. Yeah, Melissa, I think the stock reactions here really speak to that. If you look Weight Watchers up, you know, 80% today, but if you look at the makers of these weight loss drugs, Eli Lilly and Novo Nordisk, you know, their stock's really not going higher, kind of moving lower with the overall market, really shows that it's in the market saying Weight Watchers needs this. Uh, these companies don't need Weight Watchers necessarily, and that's because these launches have already been going so fast, hampered only really by supply constraints. BMO's uh, Evan Seegerman writing in a note last night in response to this news with Weight Watchers, quote, even as supply grows, we expect every dose of Manjaro and Ozempic slash Wagovi to be spoken for. Uh, and just to review what these drugs are, Innovo Nordisk has Wagovi and Ozempic. Ozempic is approved for diabetes. Wagovi is actually approved for obesity. Lily's drug is Manjaro. It is approved for diabetes. It's expecting approval for obesity either at the end of this year or early next year. This market, as you laid out, expected to be huge. Some analysts saying perhaps the biggest drug market ever, but there are still some key questions about this, including reimbursement, particularly in the weight loss space. And we are waiting to see results of more long-term studies on the health effects, the health outcomes from these drugs to see how that changes. Mel? Meg, has there been any analysis on the sort of um, cannibalization effect, I can't think of a better word, of these drugs to the extent that obesity is the, is the cause, is a root problem for a lot of other problems like heart disease, cholesterol, et cetera, that these weight loss drugs will actually take away from, you know, sales of the other drugs? You know, it's a question that's been coming up today, and I think it's a really interesting one, but it has not been something that I've seen pharma analysts focus on. I mean, we were talking about Merck's new cholesterol drug yesterday. Mm -hmm. I have not seen analyses suggesting that their cholesterol market will disappear because these obesity drugs will be so successful, um, but that's something I'd love to hear doctors uh, talk about. All right. Thank you very much, Meg Terrell. Uh, Karen, just quickly on Weight Watchers. It's yeah. a small company, so we don't really talk about it. Right. But they made money out of thin air on this acquisition. They did. I mean, this is, you know, there's it's a lot of projections. That, there was one we talked about. It's a scaled to a 25 million run rate. I'm not quite sure what that means. But so five times revenues. Obviously, this not a huge 11% short interest. But people say, well, is it cannibalizing their own old business? That's happening anyway. Right. So I kind of think an interesting acquisition for them. All right. For more on uh, what some are calling the holy grail drugs for obesity and weight loss, let's bring in Dr. Ethan Weiss, entrepreneur in residence at Third Rock Ventures and a cardiologist at UC San Francisco Health. Um, great to have you with us, Ethan. Um, in, in terms of these, in terms of you know a deal like Weight Watchers, it, it sort of gets you thinking about what these drugs will displace or disintermediate 
in this market. And I was just talking to Meg about some of the other drugs that, that may not get prescribed as much because people are now not over, overweight. I mean, do you start thinking about that at this point or is it way too early? Oh, no, I think it's probably early for that. And I'd be surprised if we see that. I mean, there's uh, uh, there's very little sort of direct competition between these different classes of medications. Cholesterol is cholesterol. Cholesterol improves slightly if you lose weight, but it's not going to dramatically improve. And indications won't really change that much. So I don't see that as being a potential issue. How do you think about these drugs? Because if, if you were to say... Uh, the drug companies can think of a drug, create a drug that has a huge total addressable market that everybody wants to take because almost everybody's overweight in this country, and you got to take it forever. It seems like this is the ultimate drug that you can come up with. Yeah, I mean, I think a couple of things. One is this this class of drugs was introduced to the market in 2005 and Bayetta, which was approved uh, I can't remember. I think it was Amlin that had the that had that drug. So we have a wealth of experience with these drugs. I think what we've seen recently is an increase in the dose, which has pushed the weight loss effect, which was sort of more modest than the earlier versions of these drugs. Uh, you know, they're approved initially for people who are obese. You know, BMI of greater than thirty percent, and uh, that that's not the sort of what stories we're hearing about with different celebrities and other people getting involved or trying to get get access to these drugs now. The way I look at it is it's it's an incredibly important advance that kind of bridges what we have with the lifestyle uh, lifestyle therapies that are in existence, like Weight Watchers, and all the way up to bariatric surgery, which is available to people who are desperate for something. You're talking about patients who actually need this drug because their BMIs are too high. There are, and, but as you mentioned, and as we see on Instagram, there are plenty of people who are taking it whose BMIs are not that high. Do you think that we're going to be in a situation where there's, people are going to want these pills, even if they're not necessarily indicated for it under FDA approval, that they're going to seek out doctors who, I mean, I guess this happens with every drug, but it seems like this might be more, more so where you create situations where there can be... I don't want to say pill mills, but but places where you know you can go get a prescription. Yeah, I mean, there's not really like a black market run on on cholesterol medications. It's not like people are <laughs> are um, you know banging down the door. And so this does speak to something that everybody wants. You're absolutely right. This is a um, you know weight loss is something that everybody across the spectrum probably does want to some degree. The drug is not indicated for people who are normal weight, and so for those people, it will be incredibly expensive. It's also important to remember this is not a pill. These are injections. Uh, and so there will be barriers to people using them widespread. It doesn't mean that celebrities or a handful of people with a lot of money won't get access to them. It probably will happen. But I think the vast majority of people who get these drugs will be people in whom they're really indicated. It's Karen. Thanks for being on. So we know Nova Nordisk and um, Lily are out there ahead of the pack. Do you think we're going to see other competition that will end up bringing the price of these drugs down? You know, I think uh, they're really far out, and it would be hard to imagine people competing with them directly. I, if I had to speculate, I would guess that the place that the other companies might be able to make a dent is on trying to address some of the issues with these two drugs. And the main ones are really tolerability rather than safety itself. So the drugs are hard to use, and, and patients in whom I've prescribed them report that they are difficult. This is not a sort of take a pill and forget about it and, you know, put your bathing suit on and go to the beach. It's it's a it's a real chore to take these. It's not going to be uh, everybody who can do it either. What's the next step in, in the science of these drugs? Just making it into pill yeah, I mean, I think, form? I mean, 
There are pill forms already, and I think that's that's something. I, I don't see that as being a, a gigantic leap forward. Uh, it, you know, it may change a few people's minds, but we have experience with cholesterol medicines where, you know, the last latest big class of medicines, these PCSK9 inhibitors are injectable. And we were all concerned about whether patients would want to take them when they first came to the market in 2015. And it turns out that patients love it. It's a, you know, once, once every couple of week injection and they can kind of forget about it. So I think that the advances that I would hope to see, and I think patients will hope to see, is improving on that tie, that tolerability, that side effect profile, the particularly the GI stuff and, and the nausea. And you know, that's the thing that I hear the most from patients now is that, that you know, it can be really difficult to take these medicines. Dr. Weiss, thank you so much for joining us. We appreciate it. My pleasure. Ethan Weiss. All right, how do we trade this? Well, Eli Lilly had a rough day today. It's down around 308 or so, 310. That's where we sort of bottomed out, I want to say September of last year. I think you look at Lilly off this sell-off. I'll say this. I mean, obesity is clearly a problem. It's a health problem. But being chronically lazy is something entirely different. I mean, maybe that's a societal problem that you can't trade a stock around, but maybe we should be thinking a little bit more about. You mean lazy because you're taking the pill instead of actually dieting? You, dis- you, you make your own interpretations <laughs> there, Melissa Lane. Or maybe so lazy you don't even want to inject the drug. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is you're back at square one. Yeah, I, I think there's going to be a whole host of wh- where do we get to the side effects? Right? I think we're just we're at the tip of the, of the spear on some of the stuff. Mm-hmm. But just to make it tradable, something that has to do with more of the cholesterol side, which we've had news in where Meg talked about earlier, Merck has the best chart in this space, bar none. There's not even anything close to it. But but I think I, I would have been where you're at. I think this does cannibalize the the uh, Crestors of the world. Because if you're not as heavy, you have a lower cholesterol rate. So you're not going to be taking those pills uh, simultaneously. All right, where do you stand in pharma? Uh, I'd bring it back to Weight Watchers, actually, right? Because I'm wondering if the efficacy of these whole treatments work best if they work in tandem, if it's a lifestyle change accompanied with actually taking a pharmaceutical. And I think that's probably the best case scenario for customers or clients or, uh, you know, the, the, the obese. And it's probably the best case scenario for Weight Watchers as well. I'm not inclined to buy a company that's just rallied 70 or 80 percent. But I do think you know, while they're not approaching this from, from a position of strength, I do think that's probably the best outcome and one that's aligned with the user. All right, up next, sticker shock. Just when you thought it was about that time to get a good deal on a used car, prices are spiking again. Our Phil has got the details on the biggest month-to-month hike in prices since the Great Recession. And throughout March, we are celebrating women's heritage. Here's the CEO of Ventus. From a very young age, I've really been interested in achievement and getting things accomplished. And my parents instilled that in me, along with a really good work ethic. I think it's really important to be fearless and to be confident. And one framework I've used in decision making for my own personal career as well as for Ventas is the upside downside where if you really can see an upside that substantially outweighs the downside that's the green light to go ahead and make that decision and go forward. Welcome back to Fast Money. Sticker shock on used cars with prices rising more than 4% last month. That is the largest month-on-month jump since 2009. Our Phil LeBeau's got more on this latest data. Phil. 
And Melissa, it's all about the chart you were showing there. In fact, let's show it again, because what you're going to see here is something we weren't expecting at the beginning of last year. Used car prices moving higher, up 4.3% in the month of February compared to January. By the way, that is the third straight month that uh, used vehicle prices have climbed. And what happened in February has a lot of people in the auto industry saying, hmm, Perhaps we were a little premature thinking inflation is over. A couple of things to keep in mind. It is the largest February increase since 2008. And every single segment was up. Cars, trucks, SUVs, you name it, people were paying more for those vehicles. And the supply also dropped in February. So you have a situation where if you were selling a used vehicle, which many dealers were, and obviously there are people who were selling them as well, they were in the driver's seat. In fact, Mannheim Auto Auction, and Mannheim is really the company that crunches all of these numbers on a regular basis, issued a statement today when it uh, released its report about used car prices saying, the month saw sellers with more pricing power than what is typically seen for this time of year. Bottom line, if you thought we were going to see lower prices this spring, think again. Take a look at the uh, auto retailer stocks, the dealer stocks, if you will. We're talking about CarMax, Lithia, Sonic. All of them are likely to have a pretty strong spring, although Adam Jonas was out with a note today saying that he still thinks we will see a moderation in used vehicle prices. At the end of the day, a lot of this has to do with the fact that the new vehicle manufacturers, and we're just showing you GM, Ford, and Stellantis, Think about what's happened, Melissa, over the last three years. Ever since the chip crisis hit, it, hit, you saw a real drop in production. Not just production overall, but production of moderately priced vehicles, sedans, smaller cars. Everybody, not everybody, but a lot of people got out of making those. Well, that's really been the support for the used vehicle market for a long time. So now if you're somebody who's out there looking for a Toyota Corolla, uh, you're stuck. There's not a whole lot of selection out there, and that's what we're seeing right now. All right, Phil, thanks. Phil LeBeau. You bet. Okay. It's an affordability thing, too, right? With rates going higher, it's more expensive to buy a new car, the right that all the terms are not in your favor right now. But to Phil's point, he made it. It makes the Fed's job. We've, that's how we led the show. Their right. job is much more difficult. For all those out there that magically thought inflation was going away, this one input suggests it's not. Yeah. You know, it's, it's bullish for the rent-a-car companies because when you look at their fleet value, that's the, that's the metric that you want to look at when you value the rent-a-car companies. Also, when you look at a Ford or a GM, think about how many cars come off of lease. And when the used car prices go down, there's lease impairments. This has to be a tailwind, but it balances out. It's more bullish for a rent-a-car company, and it's less bullish for the, the uh, legacy automakers. Bullish also for auto retail? O'Reilly. Yeah. I mean, for Carvana, it's, it's not bad for them, right? Carvana. They have a giant you know, inventory of used cars. It's, oh, right. It's, so all of a sudden, that's not all of a sudden, but that's but worth more. That is good books. for them. I had thought GM, though, said that they weren't having supply issues. So I, I'm not quite sure um, w what to make of that, but it's interesting. I mean, plays to your point as well, yeah. that everything's yeah. more expensive. Yeah, you know, I, I think it also benefits companies like AutoNation, where you're going to do self-help repair, things of that nature. Uh, I also think, to Guy's point about the Fed, uh, yeah, it certainly makes their job more difficult because we've been saying goods, goods have come down and services have, have stayed sticky, and this flies in the face of that. Up next, airline stocks define the turbulence in the markets today. The upgrade helping to give the sector a lift and the bullish options action ahead. Fast Money's back in two.
We've got a market flash on Silvergate shares surging in the after hours. Steve Kovacs got the details. Steve. Hey there, Melissa. Yeah, look at shares going about 6% here on this Bloomberg headline saying Silvergate's in talks with the FDIC to save the bank. Uh, we don't have much more than that, but it sounds like uh, investors are on the hopes here that the FDIC can come and rescue things. As we know, they've been going through a lot of struggles due to their relation with uh, FTX and all the crypto. But they are, according to this report, trying to get crypto investors together to shore up some liquidity to keep things afloat here. Uh, we've reached out to the company, Melissa, and we'll have more if they get back to us. All right, Steve, thanks. thanks. Uh, the stock, by the way, had popped as much as 16% in the after-hour session, paired those gains right now. Karen, um, salvage and bank, not a good combination of words in general. No, not a good combination. I think, I mean, to me, I, I don't, that sounds like things are really unraveling and they want to try to save it, which, okay, I understand that. Saving a bank is is not easy. Do you remember the J.P. Morgan Bear Stearns, uh, right. where they did save Bear Stearns, but it was a price that started out at like one buck a share. Right, right. They ultimately raised it, but um, but I'm long puts, so I might have a bias here. Okay. Uh, meantime, shares of Delta bucking the trend today after an upgrade from Evercore. The moves got options traders booking their tickets. So how's the action looking? Mike Coe's got the details. Mike. Yeah, so Delta traded more than three times their average daily call volume, calls outpacing puts also by more than three to one, most of that very short dated paper. The most active contract was the 40 and a half strike call that expires at the end of this week. We saw over 23,000 of those trading for an average price of about, t- about 17 cents. Buyers of those calls obviously betting that that stock's rally could continue. We did also see bullish flow, I should point out, in United Airlines, Spirit Airlines, and in the ETF that tracks them, Jets. All right. Thanks, Mike, for more options action. Tune into the full show. That is Friday, 5.30 p.m. Eastern time. Up next, Final Trades. Time for the Final Trades. Go around the horn. Grasso. Sonos. Music to my ears. Oh, oh nice. Bonoin. Morgan Stanley put out a pretty compelling piece around a Ferrari, so I'm going to go with race. Karen. Well, if it's good enough for Would You Rather, which I kind of screwed up the game, but I'm going to stay with Google then. I'll <laughs> I like the self-flagellation. <laughs> uh, guy. Daniel Jones, four-year deal. Mel, you were just Man. saying they should sign Jones, Ooh. and then you're going to put a tag on Saquon. I mean, you had this a week ago. Lockdown. Yeah. Lockdown. Yeah. By the way, Nick Basketball. I mean, when was the last time you saw the Knicks like this, Mel? Unbelievable. It's unbelievable. So is Amgen at these levels. I think you got to buy the stock here. Right. Thanks for watching Fast. See you back here tomorrow at 5 for more Fast. Meantime, don't go anywhere. CNBC special taking stock with Mike Santoli starts right now. From pit lane to podium, the Las Vegas Grand Prix is providing fans a race day experience at the speed they deserve. With the help of T-Mobile for Business, our 5G advanced network solutions are powering race day operations with event-wide connectivity. From streamlined gate entry to an immersive app, giving fans blazing fast access to the sport they love. This is accelerating innovation. This is the Las Vegas Grand Prix with T-Mobile for Business. Take your business further at T-Mobile.com slash now. 